No matter what you say, today could be the day. We've got plenty to learn and lots to see along the way. You know what time it is, no matter where you've been. So let's do it again. Listen up and let the sun shine in. We've got soul training. Time to practice what you preach. Ooh, yeah. Yes, we do. We've got soul training. Greetings, colleagues. What are what? Give me a list. What? Uh, what's your favorite uh, sequel? Uh, Daniel, what do you got? I'll think about it. My favorite sequel, um, the New Testament. Okay. Well, once again. <laughs> yeah, there we go. I was wanting to go watch George Washington Carver make peanut butter, and he yeah, was going to watch something else. That one time. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of Indiana Jones or Back to the Future 2 is pretty good. Okay. Bart, you're with us. What's your favorite sequel? Entertainment wise, right, right. Uh, maybe some of the Star Wars movies. I don't know. Maybe some of the Lord of the Rings movies. Anything that has a sequel or trilogy. Well, here's my answer. I don't like any sequels. Oh my! I don't like any because I feel like that you can never improve upon the original. But if I had to pick something, I guess I would have to side with Big Show and, and Back to the Future. Back to the Future One was great. Back to the Future 2 was challenged me a little bit. Back to the Future 3, I mean, I was having to use, I was watching on you know, my VCR. I was having to pause, take notes, see what happens, go back, rewind. It was a kind of an academic exercise, so I didn't mm-hmm. enjoy that. Yeah, see, I, I thought you would go with like Frozen 2 or something like that. No, I, I, I did not. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of sequels for a lot of reasons. Uh, for those reasons, but uh, Back to the Future <clears throat> is listed in like the, the tops of the tops of uh, of all sequels, and I just like to read this little little summary here, and then this will you'll see the connection here. In this final chapter, Marty McFly obtains a seventy year old message from the time traveling Doctor Emmett Brown, in which he informs Marty that he is retired to a small town in the Old West. Marty then finds out that the Doc was murdered shortly after sending the letter. In order to save his friend, Marty will have to travel back to time, disentangle a love-struck Doc from a local school marm, and repair the DeLorean, all while avoiding a posse of gunslingers. See, that just makes my head hurt, just reading that and thinking about all of that. But the good news is about sequels that I do like is when it comes to soul training. This is what I would deem a sequel to something that we've already had, uh, or we've started, rather. This is Bart's third time to be with us. So I do like sequels when it, in relation to soul training, but not in relation to Hollywood. So there you go. <laughs> that was a long way around. <laughs> and I was sitting there thinking, you know, I bet most of the people listening – that have seen Back to the Future too, so that uh, we could have saved like three minutes, but that's okay. Yeah, We're glad just, to have Bart with us again. We are, and and I'll just say a few more words, and I will totally be quiet and, and turn this over to the <clears throat> the experts. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, something we're going to talk about tonight, how we got the Old uh, Testament. 
uh, and maybe try to squeeze in uh, translations or what most, or what I might say, versions of the Bible, and and kind of try to tie all those things in together. So, uh, and I'm just going to ask the question and let you all kind of fight over who's going to answer it. But when you think of the Dead Sea Scrolls, what immediately comes to mind, Daniel? The, uh, the the setting where they were found is the first thing that comes to my mind. I, I start imagining these Bedouin shepherds out there in a, a cave-riddled uh, Judean wilderness, uh, arid environment. That's uh, I, I start picturing the, the, the setting. Well, instead of a physical setting, what I think of immediately when you say the Dead Sea Scrolls is I think of power, and I think of the, the, the word confirmation and uh, the fact that this discovery of these documents just so much helped us to recognize, to give us confidence that the message that we have, the, the documents that we hold in our hands tonight, right now, today, are the same messages that they held in their hands. As I think about it this way, when you read Genesis 1, when you open up your Bible and you read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, you're reading the exact same message that the men and women in the first century and before were reading. Some, so for more than 2,000 years, we know that we're reading the same message that they were reading. And so when I hear the Dead Sea Scrolls, that mention, that's what I think of. It's incredible. What's really cool about this is that this year, the year 2022, this is the 75-year anniversary of the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Daniel mentioned uh, the Bedouin shepherds who... Uh, were traveling through this barren area um, 75 years ago, and a couple of goats had gotten lost. I mean, the story is really cool. They, some goats have gotten lost, and so just as a way to not only pass the time, but to maybe you know find out where their goats were, threw some rocks into some caves. And instead of hearing uh, an animal make a noise, they heard pottery shatter. And so these fellows went into these this first cave, known as Cave Number One now, um, and found these ancient documents. And then took it to basically black market traders, and, and then the race was on after that. Uh, we've moved up to 11 caves have been identified in the Qumran area where they have found uh, these documents that, uh, that show us that the documents that we have, the Bible we have, is the same Bible they had. Because up to that time, this is one of the things that really is amazing. Up to that time, like to think about the book of Isaiah, the oldest Isaiah manuscript, the oldest complete Isaiah manuscript we had, dated to about the year 1000. And so when this discovery was made, it moved the date back over a thousand years. And so we knew that in that time period, from the first century BC to the year 1000, the message hadn't changed. The documents hadn't changed. There'd been, you know, small little inconsequential changes, but the the message of Isaiah and the message hadn't changed. And so we could say that the book we hold in our hand, we know it's the same book they held in their hands. It's incredible. Kind of goes back to what I started with, that the original is the best. <laughs> and that's what we know. We yes. know we have the original, and that was confirmed by this discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's just incredible, just changed everything. And that's why this is widely regarded as the greatest, single greatest archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Um, and it's it's something that it it's not so great in that it totally changed what we know, but what what really makes it great is that it confirmed right. 
what we know. It gave us great confidence. Hey, we can compare this, the Hebrew text that we have that's a thousand years newer than that, and now back that up a thousand years and see that the, the, the text has been reliably preserved over that time. And, and so if it's been preserved over that time, that gives us a, a lot of confidence that the Bible that we can read today, the Old Testament that you and I can read today is essentially the same Old Testament that Jesus read right. and the apostles read. Amen. That's right. Joe, what do you think of when you hear the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, the thing that comes into my mind, apart from what you guys mentioned, the thing that comes into my mind is the people that put those scrolls in those caves did so with preservation in mind. So they knew that those documents were important and at all costs must be saved. And that's that's what I think of. Yeah. And that's an even fascinating uh, idea to think about what these people were doing. Why were they out in the desert like that? And then why did they... Uh, hide and preserve the documents the way they did. Uh, we're confident that we know a lot about these people. We certainly don't know everything. We know that um, they were very religious. One of the things we found in this Qumran community uh, is there's ritual bath after ritual bath. There's so many of them. The, kind of the idea is they they basically went through ritual bathing multiple times a day, before breakfast, before lunch, before dinner, before bed. They went through these um, these ritual baths to, in order to remind themselves to continue to stay uh, pure. And it seems to be the case that they were likely uh, people known as the Essenes, and it seems to be the case that they were preserving these documents that were so special to them as Rome came through and destroyed Jerusalem in the year 70, that they knew that it was going to be a short period of time before Rome made their way to them as well, and they wanted to preserve the documents that were so special to them, and so they put them in these places to hopefully hide them. And thankfully, uh, they escaped the yeah. They the, found a good the spot. fire and the sword of <laughs> right, yeah. And Rome wasn't able to destroy them, thankfully. Um, and I've not done that research, but the t- the couple of the boys uh, that were looking, you ever heard whatever happened to them? I mean, as far as how they grew up, obviously, and. Yeah, no, I don't know what happened to those Bedouin shepherds. I do not know. Don't know what happened to them. Yeah, it's yeah. a good question. I couldn't yeah. get them do on little, the podcast. Do a little research. Well, on that. I was, you know, we got, we were going to. I'm still working on getting that guy who was swallowed by a whale from Jonah. I need to do that. Yeah, You're from, right. from the Northeast. I'm working on trying to get him on here. So I didn't know if we could maybe get one of these guys on here. You know, the 75 plus. You know, I well, doubt they're still with us. Yeah, we better do it quick. You know, so we came with the technology and things like that. So uh, the only thing that I wanted to add, I mean, I, I'm not going to take away from anything you all said, but when I, I just think about the, uh, from an evangel, evangelism standpoint that, uh, you know, they were searching not for, they were searching for a goat, but I think about what they discovered, they were searching, and I think about the act of searching, that when we're searching, that one question kind of begs another question, and it kind of sparks curiosity, and then now 11 caves and more, you know, continuous excavation for 75 years, and and for me, it, it drives me the, to remind me of the importance of searching and seeking, and never never stop. Right, and don't underestimate the importance of a crackpot in the wilderness, right? Exactly. You just never know. You, you, you never know. Um, I need sound effects. <laughs> yeah, it was. Well, you can add that in. Like you did that for the Halloween. Yeah, I did. Didn't that's it? true. It was ghoul yeah. training. I remember that. Uh, Y'all are really plugging some old episodes. I think that's the fourth one you plugged. Third one, maybe. Uh, well, trying to get the listens up on the old episodes. You know, keep them evergreen. And that's true. Uh, that was a phrase you used early. I was trying to think of that the mm-hmm. other day. Evergreen. That's awesome. 
um, as moving forward, uh, and I know you've already touched on how that the Dead Sea Scrolls have helped us to understand the New Testament, but continues to, to validate. Also, I think the Dead Sea Scrolls really kind of puts the kibosh on skeptics and, and people, um, you know, who are skeptical of Scripture and, and skeptical of God, and this is kind of more confirmation. So could you all speak to how this kind of adds to already a mountain full of evidence, but more evidence? Well, first thing— I want to say is that um, everything that was found at the Dead Sea Scroll had to do with uh, the Old Testament. There was um, no New Testament documents there. It was all uh, Old Testament. There was a few commentaries. There was even a few uh, extra biblical things there. But all of the biblical documents found were all of the Old Testament documents. There weren't New Testament documents there found. And so I just wanted to make sure that... um, we emphasize that so there's not a misunderstanding as to what was discovered. And so this discovery helped us to know that the Old Testament that we have, that you have in your Bibles, you have, you have in a, a Old Testament, New Testament right there in front of you, uh, that the Old Testament is confirmed and solidified um, by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, there's, <clears throat> and there, there's a lot of history there, too. The... Um, uh, Qumran community, these uh, scrolls date from around the 3rd century B.C. to the 1st century B.C. So it's the intertestamental time stretching into the time the New Testament was being written. So that's why you don't have New Testament documents there. But they were, uh, over the course of, I don't know, 20 years they were excavating uh, these caves. They found 930 uh, different scrolls or, or fragments of, of scrolls. You know, they're, they're not all whole uh, scrolls, and it takes a long time to uh, preserve them as they unroll them. You know, you can't just take a 2,000-year-old scroll and, and whip it across the table. You know, it's going to crumble, and that's, that's uh, going to destroy it. So it, it, we're, still, we're still learning some of the things that are on those uh, scrolls, still being uh, translated, still being made available uh, today. So there's, there may still be discoveries coming. And of those, what I say, 930 uh, uh, scrolls, Actually, only about a quarter of them are scripture. So there's a lot that deal with commentary, uh, things from the uh, the apocrypha, uh, pseudepigrapha, other types of of documents uh, as well. I just want to ask a question about the commentary. I just and I have not read anything that's been translated. But um, what type of commentary? Um, was documented? I mean, what was the commentary? What, what direction was it going? Was it just more of a conversation or just more of research? I, I don't I don't really know. I haven't read them uh, myself, but you know, it's common for there to be ancient commentaries. We have them on the New Testament as well. well it's not any different than what men are still doing today, right? You read, uh, you go to a bookstore and there's a commentary on Genesis written by some man or woman or a commentary on Matthew written by some individual, uh, same kind of situation. It was a uh, opportunity for them to share their understanding of what the text was, just like we read uh, in the Old Testament. You know, Ezra, Nehemiah, it says that they would read the text and then give the sense. And, then, and so some of these uh, ancient scholars doing the same thing that we do today. They would read it and then give the sense and give their commentary on what the message was about. Especially based on um, you know their their scholarly work, their study, and how they tie it all in together. How does that? You think you all think the Dead Sea Scrolls kind of kind of pushed us into modern day translations at some point, or you know versions um, that we all discuss and kind of bat around even today? Um, 
Well, that's that's interesting that you mentioned that because um, you know Bart mentioned that this is the 75th anniversary of those uh, Dead Sea Scrolls being discovered. Um, many, some uh, translations that are very popular were done before uh, that time, so they they didn't have the benefit of being able to take the Dead Sea Scrolls into account. That's not a huge deal because it didn't change the Dead Sea Scrolls didn't change the the content. Of, of what we know to be in the Old Testament, but rather they affirmed it. Um, but they did add to the number of manuscripts that we had to go they, by. Yeah, they did that, and, and they added to the, the certainty of it and, and that sort of thing. Um, Bart, do you want to weigh in on the translation process and how we got to where we are with modern translations? Well, one of the things that I would say is that, see, this is a, a huge conversation. I mean, moving from canon, you know, what books should be, in the Old Testament, which books be in the New Testament, which we discovered discussed last time, but then also talking about uh, knowing that the ones that we do have that they say what they originally said, continue to say the same thing, and that is what the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls has done for us: is has confirmed the message that the text that we have, the Hebrew text that we use to translate into English, it is the same one that they were using all those years ago, um, and. It just continues to show how as each year goes by, as each decade goes by, we have more and more and more manuscript evidence that confirms what we have. And here's, here's what I'm talking about. Um, you know, as, since we know that the Old Testament written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek, you have to have a, a team of people. Um, if you have uh, individuals come together who've studied the language and they, they work together to say, this is what the text said, this is what the Hebrew meant there, this is what the Greek meant here. The more manuscripts we have, the more and more and more we can know that this is God's message. For example, let's just talk about the King James Version. Uh, don't want to say anything disparaging about the King James Version. We're super thankful for it. It's, it's helped us for centuries. Uh, so many people have known it, memorized it, o- obeyed the plan of salvation because of it. We're so thankful for it. But let's just think about this one concept. The translation team that worked on the King James, from what I've read, had about 25 manuscripts they were working with. We now have well over 5,000 manuscripts. Now, think about it. If I'm working on, if I'm really concerned about only knowing God's Word, not taking away from, not adding to, but having the very message that God shared originally. If I'm truly concerned about that, I think I'm going to want the most evidence possible to keep getting me closer and closer and closer to the message that God shared. And so if I can have a stack of over 5,000 manuscripts that are old and get very, very close to the original or just have a, a handful, you know, 25 manuscripts, I think I'm going to enjoy, and I think I'm going to feel more confident uh, with that greater number. And so that's just one of the situations that you look at. If you say uh, you don't have to be scared of a newer translation, you got to be careful, but you don't have to be scared. And because I'm thinking that I want to get to a place where I am more and more and more and more certain that I have what God shared with us originally, and so that's why I'm thankful for things like you know the ESV and something like that that um, is working off of the thousands of manuscripts rather than the handful of manuscripts. And is, is that why 
Um, occasionally you'll be reading and then there'll be something that's in brackets and you get to digging into it. And it says older manuscripts may not have this. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And But there's a situation where you have to not only think it's not just only old is better and it's not only bigger numbers are better. It's a combination of age and um, number and location, you know, because there's been translations found in numerous different geographical locations. So if I can find a, a, you know, the manuscript family that is old, that is widespread, that has a great number, then I'm sitting, I'm sitting pretty, and I, I can be confident that I've got uh, the message that, that was used by, by the ancients. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, not only do they have so many more manuscripts available now than the King James translators had available to them. No, no disparagement at all toward the King James translators. They did an excellent job of what they had. Um, but the the oldest manuscripts that we have were not available to them. Uh, and so it's sort of ironic that the the English translation that most of us sort of think of as being the oldest translation, because it was translated the longest ago, is based on the most recent uh, Greek text. Right, 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 And right. so it's not, it, it's both the newest and the oldest at the same time. That <laughs> right. makes sense. It does to me, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, because, you know, think about that, the original translation of King James then in 1611, um, and these uh, Dead Sea Scrolls not even found till 1947. Um, and so there was that whole family of, of manuscripts that they had no idea that existed, just to name just the one, since we mentioned the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, they had been hidden for a long time and not available to the translation team of the King James. Now, our, our dear listener, as they hear us talk about translations, probably have the question, what uh, what translations do you recommend or view as reliable if um, if they're out there in you know, they're they're going on Amazon or whatever, and they're going to buy a new Bible. Uh, what do you recommend? Personally, I, I use um, the ESV, the English Standard Version, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one, like I said, the uh, use of, the utilization of uh, the most and latest manuscript evidence. Uh, plus, it's, it's translated in a way that is uh, understandable. It's, it's readable. And that's the, the key is uh, we want to <laughs> make sure that we're reading it. Um, and so it's written in a way that not only is using the latest scholarship, but also is, is readable. And it's, it's faithful at, to uh, the Hebrew and Greek text. And so uh, we don't want something that's going to be a, a commentary in and of itself where uh, denominational ideas are just presented straight in the translation. Uh, we want it to be a, a faithful rendering of the Hebrew and Greek, what God shared with us originally. And uh, so when you can combine uh, scholarship with readability, with faithfulness to the text, uh, you've got uh, just exactly uh, what you want. And so that's why I I, uh, preach from the the ESV, because I'm thankful for that. But um, the the Bible that's read is is the Bible that is going to be the most helpful. So if you enjoy the New King James, if you enjoy the uh, American Standard, you know, whatever of those things that... If that's the one you're going to be um, willing to open and read, then that's the one I recommend. Yeah, our reader needs to be uh, aware of of translation philosophies. And, you know, every translation, people are coming at it with a a little bit different approach. Um, I want to echo your sentiment on the ESV. I like it. My personal 
favorite. I'm, I'm a New American Standard guy, um, but my family all uses the ESV as their main Bibles. Um, but you know, there's a little bit of a misnomer. Sometimes people talk about a word-for-word translation. An exact word-for-word translation isn't isn't really possible. Language doesn't work. Doesn't like make sense. That. It doesn't a make literal sense. Literal translations got to be and very difficult. Right. If you wanted to see that for yourself, go pick up what's called a um, interlinear Bible, mm-hmm. where you have the the Greek text is sitting there, or the Hebrew text is sitting there, and then directly below it they give the English translation. And if you were to just go through and read the English part of the interlinear Bible, it wouldn't make sense. Right. It has to be arranged in a way that uh, is more than just a literal uh, translation. You have to put it together in a way that makes sense in English. Exactly. And so you have a, a spectrum of people that, translations that try to be as literal uh, as as they can. I just did air quotes on a on a podcast. <laughs> that's why you got to move this to YouTube. <laughs> and that's yeah. right. Um, Maybe I should take a picture of that. That's right. Air quotes. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, that's one thing I do like about the New Amer- American Standard Bible. For me, is it sometimes tries to bring in uh, a little bit of the Greek word order and things like that in a way that is is maybe a little less intuitive and interpretive in English, but allows the original language to bleed through a little bit more if you're aware of that. But um, then you've got translations that are dealing with more of a a thought-for-thought type of translation where their idea is, you know, here, let's let's look at this sentence. What is the uh, writer trying to say there? Let's interpret that thought in the best English words we can. And then you've got translations that go all the way to the other side where it's just a, a blatant paraphrase. You know, right. he, here it is, my own words. Yeah. But there's usefulness in that too, like the message. Um, that's a paraphrase. The guy doesn't claim, right? Yeah, he oh, it's definitely a paraphrase. He doesn't even, he didn't even use the original language. He used an English translation and then made his own paraphrase It's almost it. a commentary kind of. Definitely. It's like a commentary definitely. or a devotional book, something like that. And that's okay as long as people are using it like a commentary devotional book, and they don't, they're not using that as their primary Bible. Recognizing it for what it is. Yeah. I just kind of wanted to, as we kind of start to head down the backstretch. Uh, <laughs> Air quotes again, it, you guys couldn't see it. <laughs> is, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, and not, I wasn't trying to, to chicken fight with anybody or anything, but I've got, I've found myself in some pretty serious conversations with people who were offended if I said something about XYZ version and mm-hmm. it was their version, it was their mother's version, their grandmother's version. And I mean, I, I've gotten, and I'm like, started backing away. I'm like, I didn't mean to to step into that. I wasn't trying to start a fight, but you know, for me, I, you know, I like the new King James version because it's what I have started out with. Uh, but you know, Bart several years ago influenced me to consider the ESV. And so now if I'm teaching a class or if I'm preparing a lesson for me, I'm not, I've never been on a translation team, obviously, but, uh, I like having multiple resources, even mm-hmm. down to a couple different commentaries, Bible dictionaries, you know, New King James, ESV, and even pull up King James or something just for me, whatever point I'm trying to make. But I want to see for myself how all of that works together and fits together. Now, I'm, you know, going to top out pretty quick at five or six resources if I'm going to – I'm not going to have 5,000, you know, that I'm going to be looking at. But, uh, 
you know, from I guess the point I'm making is I think it's important to try to consider everything and then compare it to what God's will is. Yeah, using various translations in your study and comparing them is a great way for somebody that doesn't know original languages, that doesn't know Greek, doesn't know Hebrew, to become aware of different ways something can be handled. Um, and, and it really can enhance your, your Bible study. Um, when I preach, I typically, not every time, but typically I do use the New King James Version because I find it to be the least objectionable version. Nobody it, gets upset at do you. Do you find it almost, it. almost middle of the road for, as far as what most people are, are studying or from or carrying around on the average? Yeah, well, like I said, nobody nobody gets mad at you for using the New King James, and I don't want somebody to uh, miss the the message that I'm trying to convey because, because they're, they're mad about the translation. Yeah, they're focused on an argument. Well, why would they be mad about the translation? Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll introduce you to some folks. I've, I've had some discussions. Well, with. I to put it quite heard... simply, some would say that the um, modern translations are any and all of them are liberal and unusable. And uh, I don't think that's a fair assessment. I think that if um, you recognize that no translation is um, perfect, God's Word is perfect, the Hebrew original perfect, the Hebrew Greek original perfect, but any translation that is taken from the original into, like into English, um, is going to be open to um, different ways of translating it, not changing the message. There's only one way to say, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. There's only one way to say that, and only one way to understand that. Uh, but to uh, get upset that uh, someone doesn't say thee or thou, I think is not the, well, the way to... the cusp of it is, you can go to heaven reading King James... You can go to heaven and read an ESV, and there's several translations that show you the way to get to heaven, right? Yeah, you can you can discern the plan of salvation from any uh, any translation. Um, wouldn't recommend all of them, but you can you can get there. So uh, Joe is holding up emphatically the clock to let us know that we need to wrap this up. Uh, it's been a good discussion. I appreciate everybody's uh, contribution to this. Uh, dear listener, what uh, contribution do you have to this? Uh, what questions do you have? What observations do you have? We would love to hear from you. Please uh, send us an email. And if you found this to be uh, helpful, then please share it with somebody else. That's a great way that you can help this uh, this podcast. If it's been a blessing to you, help it to bless others uh, as well. And so I want to, again, thank Bart for being our uh, our guest uh, again, cl- completing the uh, the third episode in the in the Bart Suite, the trilogy, the trilogy. What what was the the first topic? Do you remember? Just apologetics, Just apologetics in, general. in general. Okay, yeah, he's a lot better than Marty McFly too. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, so again, thank you, dear listener, and thank you to the elders at the South Green Street Church of Christ for making this possible. And until next time, keep soul training. Practice what you preach. Ooh, yeah. Yes, we do. We've got soul training. To learn more, you can email us at soultrainingpodcast at gmail.com or you can write to us 
P.O. Box 503, Glasgow, Kentucky, 42142. That's Soul Training.